Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Everyone complains about traffic in Connecticut. Now, what are you doing to encourage your town or city officials to rethink street designs and increase safety measures? Coming up, we'll hear how New Haven has implemented low-cost approaches on its city streets. Also, do roundabouts or rotaries or traffic circles cause you anxiety on the road? They're one way to ease traffic and make roads safer. We'll check in with an expert across the pond. Kevin Beresford leads the UK Roundabout Appreciation Society. Our conversation just ahead. First, New York City has managed to decrease the number of traffic fatalities. For more on this, we're joined from the studios of SRF Radio in Zurich, Norman Garrick, professor of civil and environmental engineering at UConn. He's currently serving as a visiting professor at the Institute for Transportation Planning and Systems at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. Norman, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. It's nice to be on again. Now, also with us on the phone is town planner and urban designer, founder of town planning firm Dover Colon Partners. That's Victor Dover, also co-author of the book Street Design, The Secret to Great Cities and Towns. Victor, welcome to where we live. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks. So, Norman, I wanted to, to start with you. Uh, this, uh, the news out of New York City, uh, in last year, uh, the city hit its lowest number of traffic fatalities since record-keeping began back in 1910. Specifically, pedestrian deaths have plummeted to their lower, lowest level, dropping by a third. Um, and there's a lot of attention on this Vision Zero policy. Tell us about this idea and where it came from. Well, the Vision Zero started in Sweden, and the idea is that any road fatality is too much. So we need to have a policy whereby we reduce road fatalities to zero. And how do they go about doing that? What are some of the approaches to Vision Zero, Norman? Well, there are lots of different, well, as you know, um, traffic fatalities are caused by many different factors, um, including um, policies about uh, alcohol use, for example, road design, the amount of vehicles on the road, um, how the the vehicles interact with other users of the road. So uh, a Vision Zero policy should look at the the entirety of all of these different issues. And what they have done in places like Sweden is to, first and foremost, redesign the street so that they're not just about moving cars, but they're about all um, all the other users of the road. But then also looking at policies such as um, the uh, alcohol um, usage, such as who is in, um, who is responsible for road debt, who gets blamed when a road debt occur, things like that that looks at the, all the different policies together. Now, in New York City, they reduced the speed limit to 25 miles per hour. But as you just said, Norman, it's uh, many different approaches uh, in the Vision Zero uh, strategy than just reducing speed. Uh, But when we look at speed, uh, that has a lot to do with fatalities. 
Well, there is a well-known um, research, I think it came out of the UK, which shows that as you increase speeds, the, um, the chance of dying in a road accident increases um, exponentially. So if you go from 20 miles per hour and you are hit in that kind of environment as a pedestrian, your chance of surviving is almost, is more than 90%. But if you increase the speed to 30 miles per hour, then the chance of surviving goes down dramatically, maybe to 30% or less. Now, I believe uh, the Vision Zero approach in New York City began under Mayor de Blasio back in 2014. Norman, when you hear that traffic fatalities have dropped significantly uh, since record keeping began over a century ago, what's your take on that? Well, firstly, I should say that a lot of the um, the efforts that led to the changes that we have seen in New York goes back to um, Mayor Bloomberg and to um, to his transportation secretary, um, Janet Satikan. Um, so, so a lot of this is uh, precedes um, the current mayor who has. Um, followed through on many of these efforts. And it's really encouraging to see the decrease that is happening in in New York City because it, it runs counter to what is happening in the rest of the United States. But it's not really surprising because we have seen these kinds of drops in many places that have implemented some of the policies that we see being implemented in New York City. Mm-hmm. What other places have implemented uh, the Vision Zero strategy, Norman? Well, they might not label it that, but um, a city like Zurich, for example, Zurich um, and Switzerland. Switzerland is now near the bottom of all countries in terms of road fatality, and they have implemented policies such as um, we see in New York, such as um, giving back space in the roadway to pedestrians, to bicyclists. In particular here, they have had a policy of increasing bike use, which has not been the case traditionally in Zurich. Uh, and I mentioned Victor Dover is also with us, uh, co-author of the book Street Design, The Secret to Great Cities and Towns. I had just asked uh, Norman about uh, uh, speed and its relation to fatalities. In your book, you have this great diagram. I know we're on the radio, but um, if you could describe the cone of vision simulation and what happens when you see that speed limit dropping, Victor. You know, the source for that uh, image is the National Association of City Transportation Officials. And they found that when you're moving more slowly, and it's not too surprising, that you can just take in a lot more about what's going on through the windshield and through your uh, and around in your surroundings. So, for example, if you're uh, faster than 30 miles an hour, you might only really be able to pay attention to the taillights of the car in front of you and the lanes right in the center of the roadway as you move through an intersection. But if you're going 15 miles an hour, your ability to realize what's going on around you, like, for example, a pedestrian stepping into the sidewalk from your peripheral vision, uh, you become much more aware of it. And the the benefit uh, comes in two ways. And and I think we see the statistic that Norm was describing about slower speeds improving safety because of these two things. First, you have more time to react uh, because you're moving more slowly. So there are more seconds, there are more milliseconds that pass before something bad happens, like you strike a pedestrian. The second thing that happens uh, is even if you do have um, a collision, it's going to be uh, less violent. There's going to be less force and energy uh, in it. And that those two things combine to improve safety with slower speeds. 
Victor, we were, we were also curious uh, to how um, the streets uh, came to be, so to speak, here in the U.S. and how uh, city streets and, and town streets were designed, uh, what changed where uh, now we've been hearing about this uh, approach to prioritizing pedestrian-friendly uh, or bike-friendly streets. But that's not something that um, has been embraced uh, when we look at what happened after World War II and how things were designed. Can you give us a little bit of that history? There were really a couple of important inflection points in that timeline. First, in the 1920s, which Peter Norton writes about, uh, the emergence of something they called organized motordom, which was really in response to a public backlash over all of the fatalities that were happening in the streets of our cities, uh, children in particular, who had been accustomed to stepping out in the street without thinking about it. Uh, were getting struck by cars, and these cars were, with each passing generation of automobiles, going faster and uh, and more quietly. So there, there was a greater danger for the pedestrians. And their solution to that was to really push pedestrians and cyclists and other road users out of the way, to take over much of the right-of-way, uh, especially the center of it, uh, for uh, automobiles, and that's why we now have uh, things like the term jaywalking. <laughs> you know, th- that was an invention from that time period. Then after World War II, there was a f- uh, the full-on embrace of happy motoring and what's good for General Motors is good for America. And uh, the assumption was, and at this point, uh, the pedestrian world we used to know in our historic cities is pretty much over. It's going to be driving everywhere for everything every time. So let's make that fast uh, and smooth and let everybody flow out, generally speaking, flowing from the old city where employment was still concentrated to uh, the suburbs and in the process sucking the economic power of the city out into the hinterland, but also pushing us as pedestrians farther out of the There's some early 1900s pictures in the book that show people standing in the center of the street waiting for a cable car, a street car, horses and buggies, bikes. Model T's, trucks, all sharing the road, and no crosswalks and very little in the way of signage. Everybody was just sharing the speed. It was all because the the speeds were similar between these different uh, ways of moving about. And these roads that were built to get people uh, to the suburbs faster, uh, interstates and roads that are, for the most part, very straight, which only uh, drives people to go faster. Uh, You have a term in your book that describes what we have in many communities across uh, this country, uh, these interstate-like roads uh, with strip malls on either side. What do you call those, those roads? Well, the the term I think you're thinking of is uh, Chuck Marone's uh, brilliant term, strode. It's not quite a street like we think of in the traditional city. It's not quite a road like a railroad. It's some hybrid in between. It actually fails us in both ways. It's not a great address. Uh, It's not a place where people want to be. And on the other hand, uh, it's as wide as it is and as fast as it is, it's still jammed with traffic at the peak hour. Uh, there's also another term in your book that, that we were uh, looking at, the auto sewers. Right. Um, I think I heard that first from Jim Kunzler, who wrote the uh, afterward in the book. Uh, he compared designing uh, streets to designing a pipe for uh, a sewer system where the only thing you care about is how much you can get through uh, the pipe or the lane of traffic in a given hour, uh, kind of quantifying the uh, so-called level of service in a road means you're designing a, a street like as if it was a sewer pipe. Mm. 
This is where we live. Uh, today we're speaking with Victor Dover, town planner and urban designer and founder of town planning firm Dover Colon Partners, co-author of the book Street Design, The Secret to Great Cities and Towns. Also with us from Zurich, professor of civil environmental engineering at UConn, Norman Garrick, who's currently serving as a visiting professor at the Institute for Transportation Planning and Systems at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. Uh, today we're talking about ways uh, communities can uh, uh, redesign uh, their streets to make them more uh, friendly uh, versus just thinking about the priorities of, of moving the automobiles uh, faster. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. And Norman, I mentioned that you're in Zurich. Uh, you've also been leading student groups in Amsterdam. This is a city famous for its bike culture. For those of us who haven't been to Amsterdam, describe how their city streets are different from what we may see here in Connecticut. Well, the first thing about Amsterdam that you notice is that there are bikes on every street. So in most cities in the world, we have created um, some bike facilities on some streets. In Amsterdam, that's the reverse. What you have, some there are some streets that are not for cars anymore, so it's exactly the reverse. And the other thing that you notice is that there are bikes everywhere. It's like a sea of bike. And in sometimes, sometimes it can be intimidating being in Amsterdam as a pedestrian because there's, there are just so many people and so many bells moving on bikes that if you don't have your wits around you, 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 you have to jump out of the way sometimes. <laughs> I understand European cities were headed to being more car-centric like uh, many places here in the U.S., but what changed for them where they were thinking about it in a different way? Well, one of the points I like to make is that there are many car-centric cities in mm -hmm. Europe, mm -hmm. um, and the, um, the, the ones that are not are the exceptions. And we, we, we have to look at places like Oslo, Copenhagen, Amsterdam, Zurich, and a few other Swiss cities, not all of them. Um, you, the story of Zurich is uh, em emblematic of what happened in Amsterdam and Copenhagen in that the, the offici official dam and the car lobbies, they wanted to create uh, auto-oriented places. And this happened in the 60s. Mm -hmm. in, um, in Zurich, the pushback came because to change anything, you have to get, you have to put it to a referendum. And so when the city was trying, the city officials, the canton officials, the federal officials were trying to build highways and to put the trams on the ground, they were defeated not once but twice at the, 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 um, the polls. And then they were forced to adopt something called the People's Plan for improving public transit and for prioritizing public transit. And I think if you look to the history of Zurich, that is what has created the city that we see now. Mm -hmm. um, it started around in, in the late 70s, and, and it's been a, a gradual process of changing the streets back to where they're um, people-friendly, back to where they're better for tram and buses, and now for bicycle. And it's really changed the character of how people live here, but also how to get around. And also this issue of safety has been mightily impacted by some of those decisions from 40, 50 years ago. And Norman, you've written about Zurich putting in something called parking maximums. Describe that for us. So, yes, um, 
Zurich started again in the early 90s to to look at this issue of parking um and the the idea was that well actually they call it something really dramatic they call it the the grand compromise and the idea there was that they wanted to reclaim the streets and the pub the the squares in the center of town they wanted to reclaim it for people use rather than for storage of cars and so the idea was that they would not build any new or allow any new parking unless parking was removed from the streets. And I'm actually working with a master's student here to actually document the changes. And it's what he emphasizes is how gradual the change has been. But if you look at 1990 compared to now is how dramatically it's changed. Places like there's a street called the Limit K along the river, which you could never believe used to be a traffic sewer and is now for trams and for people and for um, bikers. Mm. Now, Victor, you've written about the emphasis on placemaking when we think about uh, designing uh, communities and and uh, all the different types of people who use streets, not just cars. Can you walk us through that? Sure. When we uh, wrote the book, we thought it would be quick and easy because we spent a lot of time uh, looking at streets over the years and working on street designs. Uh, so we, But we took a trip, John Massingale, my co-author, and I took a trip, uh, and then another one and another one, uh, to photograph examples that we remembered or that uh, had been recommended to us by people like Norm Garrick. And we uh, photographed them, watched them under different conditions, and we measured them, and then we stayed up late at night arguing about why some were more successful than others. The, the bottom line is the, the streets that really uh, perform well are the ones that are where, places where people want to be. So they are more than just transportation facilities uh, for all the modes. They are also addresses. Um, a place that uh, you want to be is one you're likely to come back and spend more uh, time or uh, come back and have another meal and spend more money. And so the economic performance of the streets where people want to be became pretty apparent as well. And we noticed every time that those places were designed with the pedestrian on top of the, the food chain, on the top of the pyramid of priorities. Um, and while cars were, are often, in, in most cases, accommodated in those streets, they aren't the start and finish of the design um, considerations. And we made a list of all the things that seemed to occur over and over. The streets where people want to be are shaped well by buildings and trees, uh, that make it feel like an outdoor public room. Um, they they tend to be uh, inherently safe, either because the vehicles are moving slowly or because there are uh, there's a kind of natural surveillance of the street, uh, what Jane Jacobs called eyes on the street, and a few other factors. Now, when we talked about uh, uh, European cities like Amsterdam that are very bike-friendly, and we see uh, certain cities here in the U.S., uh, you know, putting in bike lanes, is that sending maybe the wrong message that, you know, bicyclists need to stay in their lane and the car can take up the rest of the road, Victor? Well, context is everything. We have a lot of streets where the appropriate response is to have uh, dedicated, um, separated, um, and to the extent possible protected place to bike uh, that's uh, different from the space within the right-of-way that the cars are using. So some streets call for that. um, And then other streets are ones where the operation of vehicles is so slow that uh, streets uh, can be shared by pedestrians and people on bikes and 
and uh, by people moving slowly with cars or making deliveries in in, uh, in, in trucks. So the uh, I think the important word there is context. Mm-hmm. You uh, you find the the you want you a bigger menu of street types instead of just one size fits all. The big news, though, in this renaissance of, of city cycling in North America, I think uh, it came about because of um, New York City's rapid progress. They did a lot of pilot and demonstration projects at very low cost um, to try uh, bringing bikes and pedestrians into greater importance within the streets. And they immediately found that it was not just more welcoming or inviting for someone to use a bike instead of to drive, but also it was safer. And the the uh, safety improved not just for people on bikes, but for people in their cars as well. The, um, the data suggests that the one thing that made it lots safer to be out on two wheels was having a lot more people out there doing the same thing at the same time. Mm. You can join the conversation here on Where We Live, 860-275-7266. Tony's calling from Hartford. Tony, go ahead. Yeah, I was just calling in. I wanted to get in early uh, because it's a comment about uh, framing uh, the narrative and messaging. And when we talk about our streets and we uh, sometimes focus on uh, active transportation, bicycling, walking, and our transit users, we're leaving out a large segment of the transportation mode share um, in our area and it's you know people are still driving cars and when we talk about road safety I, I think it's really important that we talk about how the safety improvements and road design changes are you know best serving the entire transportation network and the safety of all road users and how the crashes and fatal crashes goes down for car drivers as well thank you Tony for your comment uh, Norman would you like to respond I think um, the, the the point is well taken that uh, in all the data that I've looked at, as you improve safety for bikers and for pedestrians, you also see a much safer environment for people in cars. And, and I think that is one of the strongest arguments for changing how we design streets because in the U.S., we are back to killing 40,000 people per year. And this is three times the rate of fatality of a lot of um, countries in Europe. So th- there is a, a huge problem that we need to address. And this is part of the, the answer to that um, problem. And Victor, before we had to break, did you want to add to that? Well, first, I couldn't agree more with Tony's comment. He's absolutely right. And there's more to the street design uh, challenge than just slowing the vehicles down or making space for pedestrians, street trees, and people on bikes. It's it's also about uh, restitching the network. So to the that we have the city designed more like a web with a lot of intersections and a lot of interconnecting links, and less like a tree where everybody is being brought back to the same trunk line road for their basic daily trips. That's the bigger challenge that comes from the design of the neighborhood, not just from the design of one street. But the result of that is that everybody wins, especially the motorist, who um, now finds there are many ways to get from here to there, even though they're moving more slowly um, and safely. Victor Dover is a town planner and urban designer, founder of town planning firm Dover Colon Partners, co-author of the book Street Design, The Secret to Great Cities and Towns. Victor, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. 
Thank you for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Norman Garrick will stay with us, professor of civil and environmental engineering at, at UConn, as we talk about strategies to ease traffic and make the roads safer for everyone. One way, traffic circles. Now, someone in our newsroom mentioned how much he hates traffic circles. Why do people either love them or hate them? We're going to talk to a man in the UK who leads an appreciation group for traffic circles or roundabouts. He has another name for them. We'll tell you more after the break, and you can join the conversation, too. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There are a few traffic circles in Connecticut. The Monroe Courier says one will soon open in the town of Monroe, June 4th. Now, how do you feel about traffic circles? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Now, who can forget that classic scene from National Lampoon's European vacation? I guess what we do is just drive around this circle here. It should be the second left exit. There's the hotel. Hey, look, kids. There's Big Ben and there's Parliament. There it is, there it is, there it is. I know. I can't seem to get over to the left, honey. I'll try next time. Sorry. We'll get out of this jam in a minute. Kids, Big Ben, Parliament, again. Kids. We know Big Ben. Parliament. Ah, the Griswolds. Now, are they a better option, traffic circles, that is, uh, than traffic lights? And and what are the benefits of installing traffic circles to manage a traffic flow and increase safety? Joining us by phone now from Redditch, Worcestershire, is Kevin Beresford, president of UK Roundabout Appreciation Society. Kevin, welcome to our show. Also known as Lord of the Rings. That's my <laughs> official title. Hi, hi there. Thank you for uh, joining us today. Uh, now, here uh, in Connecticut, we're used to calling uh, this uh, type of uh, strategy on the road a traffic circle or a rotary. There's lots of different names for them, and you also call them something else. Yes, uh, well, they're roundabouts, uh, obviously, and also they're one-way gyratories which is what I prefer. I, I like the sound of the one-way gyratory. It's the French that re- really uh, uh, thought that one up. So here in the U.S., we're used to traffic signals, but this is something that you don't like, the traffic lights that tell you uh, when to stop and when to go. Well, with the roundabouts, it's, it's so, uh, so quintessentially English, isn't it? Uh, it's all based on a, a set of decorum and etiquette. It's a bit of no after you, no after you, yeah? Because you choose when you want to join that, that, that uh, flow of traffic. Well, there's traffic lights. I mean, come on, they're, they're telling you when to stop, when to go. Uh, we don't like that in Britain. We like to do our own thing uh, with politeness and decorum. Uh, Besides uh, uh, appreciating uh, people being civil to each other, when we look at data here in the U.S., uh, when they study intersections that have been converted from traffic signals or stop signs to roundabouts, uh, it's something uh, very telling about reducing uh, the number of injury crashes of 72 to 80 percent and a reduction of all crashes of about 35 to 47 percent. So why are they safer, Kevin? I think it's because uh, when you look at intersections, everyone's going in a different direction. Whereas on a roundabout, we're all traveling in the same direction, and it's at a much slower speed. 
Um, if, if there's a collision on a roundabout, you're just talking of a side swipe, whereas uh, on intersections, it's a full-on head-on collision, which is where all your fatalities come from. And I agree with, with your stats to a degree, but mm. I thought it's something like 90% uh, saving in fatalities if a roundabout is installed over traffic lights. I mean, that's quite an alarming stat, isn't it? It is. And I'm curious when we think about, uh, you'd mentioned that uh, roundabouts are, are definitely uh, something that uh, people in the UK appreciate and it's quintessentially British, so to speak. Uh, but where was the first roundabout created? Was, was that here in the US? Can you believe in New York City? <laughs> yes, in 1905. Can you believe that? In, in Columbus Circle. But they never really took took off because it was more or less a free-for-all, you know. Uh, uh, the, the traffic that was entering the roundabout had right away. But now it's a much more simpler now in England and the continent. So you just yield to, to the traffic coming from, from the left, you know. And the ones going round the circle have right away. And that's all it is. It's not rocket science here. <laughs> that, that National Lampoon European vacation has got a lot to answer for. It really has, you know. Because for some reason, um, America is opposed or weary of roundabout. And I can't understand it because all the, the stats point to fatality where, where traffic lights are installed as opposed to roundabouts. Now, uh, Kevin, we're going to be talking about in a little bit how there are uh, different cities and towns that are now embracing the roundabout, the traffic circle. Uh, your phone's a little bit crackly, I think, because it's your cell. And again, you're calling us uh, from uh, the UK. So hopefully your line clears up a little bit. But I wanted to take a call, and you can join the conversation too, 860-275-7266. Kate's calling from Glass. Glastonbury. Kate, go ahead. Hi. Um, I uh, grew up in South Jersey, so that's where I learned how to um, drive in a circle. And uh, here it strikes me in Connecticut that uh, the DMV could do a better job of just teaching people how to take turns and how to adjust their speed. Uh, I'm thinking about the circle by Bushnell Park near the State House, which has uh, stop signs, and that causes a lot of trouble. And I look at the uh, new uh, circle rotary in Glastonbury, and that immediately struck me as too small. Mm. Well, Kate, thank you for your call. Um, Norman Garrick is with us. Uh, also, he's uh, with us from a studio in Zurich. Norman, let's talk about uh, the way traffic circles or roundabouts are designed uh, here in Connecticut, because depending on the way they're designed, they're not quite the same in, in depending on where you are. Well, um, the British came up with the term modern roundabout from around the 19, I think in the 1960s, to talk about the creation that came later. And in um, Kevin is right that the movie has a lot to answer for, but it's not just the movie. It's also how we used to design these New England traffic circles, these massive traffic circles with vehicles flowing through very fast and having a reverse priority compared to the modern roundabouts. Those things are uniformly hated in New England. And, and that's part of the problem, is that we are going to a different kind of design with these smaller roundabouts where you have to yield to the person in the roundabout and stuff like that, very uh, smaller, um, lower speeds, etc. So I guess the big point I want to make is that not all round things are the same in the road. 
they, they serve different purposes, they have different functions, and some of them are pretty horrible. So we need to actually make a distinction between um, roundabouts that are well-designed and um, traffic circles that are hellish. Mm. So what you're saying, Norman, so we might use the term rotaries, traffic circles, roundabouts interchangeably, but they're actually, uh, there are differences between them, depending on the way that um, you're able to uh, drive into one, whether you're yielding, whether you're at a stop sign, and these multiple lanes in the middle. Multiple lanes in the middle, whether or not they're huge or they're smaller, whether or not in Seattle they have something called a traffic circle, which is really lovely because it slows down traffic in neighborhood streets and it's also used for planting trees. So it adds lots of amenities to the neighborhoods. And I wish we would use some of those in a place like Hartford. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of different things. It's, you know, it's, it's, um, deceiving when we talk about these as, as all being the same. Uh, now, again, I mentioned Kevin Beresford is with us, president of the UK Roundabout Appreciation Society. Kevin, can you hear me? Yes, perfect. So uh, tell us a little bit about what uh, Norman was saying about the, the modern roundabout and the way uh, they're designed where you have uh, things in the middle that complement uh, the neighborhoods and the communities that, they, that they're in. There's nothing more expressive than the one-way gyratory. And, I, and I've seen statues, paintings, trains, boats, planes, pubs, churches, anything can go on a roundabout. And I think that's what makes them so special in, in the UK. They, they lift our sagging spirits on long, tiresome journeys. It gives any local council brimming with a, a little, a degree of civic pride, the perfect opportunity to put a garden in the middle of a road junction, how green is that? How green is that as opposed to traffic lights? There's, there's no green in traffic lights, only red. <laughs> and we have pictures of some of those roundabouts on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Uh, you can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Bob's calling from Bristol. Bob, go ahead. Hi. Um, Lucy, thanks for giving the call. Uh, I have this, yeah, I love the conversation. And I would say, I think, backing up um, Dr. Norman, yeah, there are roundabouts and there are roundabouts. Uh, I grew up in the South, and they were called traffic circles. But I, two stories um, about Connecticut uh, or New England. One is there is a wonderful roundabout leading down to a Hammonasset. You get off the I-95, you have to do a roundabout. It's wonderful. It just takes you right to where you want to go. On the other hand, I have to tell you a nightmare story. Uh, my wife and I were vacationing around Massachusetts, in Massachusetts, and she was driving, and she got caught in the most horrific roundabout near Concord. It was four lanes wide. You had to move from the inside to the outside to get to where you wanted to get in. And I thought at one point we were going to have to change sides. She was going to have to move over and I was going to have to get in the car on the driver's side because she just, it was, she she was just stuck. She was panicked about how to move from inside to outside in a four-lane rotary. And I, I just, yeah, I, there are good things and bad things. And I appreciate the fact that in England they've come up with a better design, but... It was, that was, today it's humorous, but then it was sort of frightening. So, But the one in Hammond Asset, uh, leading to Hammond Asset is just wonderful. 
Well, thank you, Bob, for your call. We're glad that your wife is okay after that experience. But he did bring up a good point. Uh, and I'll go back to Norman Garrick that when, when we're driving around in Massachusetts, there's definitely a lot more of these uh, traffic circles uh, that are present. And the, depending, again, we just talked about this, the way they're designed, um, if people don't know how to navigate them, they can be dangerous as well. I also want to tell you a story about how we use language. Um, a colleague from the CNU, um, Doug Farr, designed a roundabout in a city in Illinois, and it was um, rejected by the engineers, and they fought for um, week, for years about uh, the city wanted to implement it, but they fought for years, and lots of frustration, and finally... Um, the the engineer kept saying that we don't. The, the the idea of this roundabout was that people were allowed to party and to have a park in the middle. And the engineer kept saying that roundabouts don't have people in the middle. And finally, Doug hit upon the solution of changing the name to a traffic circle, and that solved the problem for this engineer. So it's it's kind of crazy how we use the language and also how hidebound the engineering profession can be about design. Now, what about cyclists? So we're talking about um, when you mentioned the, the caller mentioned the, the circle down by uh, Hammonasset. Um, we heard another caller mention uh, the circle that's near uh, downtown uh, Hartford when you get off the highway. Uh, but when you're on a, a, on a bicycle, uh, the way that they're designed, is it is it tricky to navigate that when the, when the cars are not quite sure how to go about it? Most definitely. Um, in fact, <laughs> I keep thinking about a roundabout um, that I used to have to ne- negotiate when I lived in Cambridge, England, and I went out of my way not to go through that roundabout because it depends, again, how it's designed. It can be really treacherous for a person on bike. But there are lots of ways to deal with bike traffic through roundabouts, and there are lots of great models, especially from the, from the Netherlands, about how bi- bicycle traffic is dealt with in the roundabout. This is where we live. Uh, today we're looking at ways to make our streets safer for everyone, pedestrians, those in cars, those on bicycles. And you can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, this segment we're talking about uh, traffic circles uh, as one way to uh, s- slow people down and also ease traffic. Uh, on the phone with us uh, is Kevin Beresford, president of UK Roundabout Appreciation Society, and Norman Garrick joining us from Zurich. He's a professor of civil and environmental engineering at UConn. I want to take another call. Allison from Fairfield. Allison, go ahead. Hi, how are you today? We're doing well. Go ahead with your question or comment. Well, there's two things. One is that uh, I spent a lot of time in France in the countryside, and uh, there are tremendous amount of roundabouts, and each one has a garden or a statue or something. The French are also, you know, very expressive, so they can be kind of kitschy and funny. So I did a photo documentation of my my trip uh, with with pictures of every single roundabout sculpture or garden in the south of France and in the Auvergne, um, so they just they're nuts about them. But the other thing is, I um, here in Fairfield we had some two really good roundabouts, and they changed one of them into a light, so you're sitting at the light for a long time and going through the the, the I don't know what you call it, now, I guess the traffic circle. And my question is, um, I've understood that it's less. Uh, environmentally friendly to sit at a light versus going through a roundabout or a traffic circle? Is that true? That's a good question, Allison. Uh, Kevin, do you want to help answer that? Yes, I I, I can. 
traffic lights, uh, if, if a roundabout is installed over traffic lights, there's 40% reduction in, in uh, emissions, in fuel emissions. And that's why they're a, a lot uh, greener, because there's a constant flow uh, through, through the roundabout, whereas traffic lights, you're just idling uh, for, for minute after minute when you're not going nowhere. So you're just pumping out exhaust fumes. So uh, roundabouts are a lot more greener. Uh, and that's, that research figure has come from U.S. research figures. Uh, and again, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Mike's calling from Glastonbury. Mike, go ahead. Hi, I'm calling from Glastonbury, and I'm calling regarding the incredibly controversial rotary in our town. <laughs> and I attest to our specialist uh, idea that it really depends on the politeness and courtesy. Uh, I was excited to hear this rotary being built, but so disappointed that uh, the people in the town drive so aggressively that it's just not working. Mm. Yeah, it's very unfortunate. That is unfortunate, and it speaks to something that our guest Kevin mentioned about why they the roundabout works better uh, in the UK, uh, not as aggressive drivers, depending on what town you're in, Kevin? It's a question of attitude, is that what you're saying? A lot of it can be to the road markings. Uh, if the road markings are incorrect, then it can cause confusion. But I've driven in America, and I, I don't find Americans aggressive drivers. <laughs> Have you been to Connecticut, Kevin? <laughs> no. <laughs> may, may I just interject? That Go I ahead, Norman. I agree with Kevin totally. I mean, the way that the road design makes a huge difference. I've um, measured speeds in stores. And you can go a few feet and the road changes totally and people are behaving totally differently. So it, I think we should look towards how the, that roundabout is behaved rather than blaming people from Glastonbury as being aggressive. <laughs> well, we, we thank you for that, uh, Norman, uh, to remind us about that. But I want to thank our guest from the UK, Kevin Burrsford, again, president of the UK Roundabout Appreciation Society. He's also known as Lord of the Rings. We see what you did there, Kevin. And we understand that you also uh, have calendars of roundabouts. We're going to put a link out on our website, uh, uh, wmpr.org slash where we live. Uh, Kevin, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Now, coming up, we're going to switch a little bit and talk about what other strategies Connecticut cities and towns are doing to make the roads safer. New Haven has been experimenting with a cost-friendly approach. More after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the way uh, streets are designed to uh, put people, not cars, as a priority to improve uh, safety for everyone. And um, with us from a studio in Zurich is Norman Garrick, professor of civil and environmental engineering at UConn, currently serving as a visiting professor at the Institute for Transportation Planning and Systems. Also uh, joining us now is Doug Hausladen, director of transportation, traffic, and parking for the city of New Haven. Doug, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Um, so before we run out of time, uh, we've heard this idea previously about complete streets, uh, a philosophical shift in how we think about designing streets and uh, working with everyone in communities uh, to make uh, the roadways safer. I'm curious what New Haven's doing there. Well, New Haven passed a complete streets ordinance after 2008 had a series of uh, tragic pedestrian deaths. community came together, the New Haven Safe Streets Coalition, passed the Complete Streets Ordinance, and that ordinance literally reprioritized the, the roadway design for the engineers of the city of New Haven to prioritize active transportation more and put on the 
put add, add to it a vulnerable user element so that we actually look at more than just vehicle throughput as a measure of success. So we were talking about all these different ways of uh, helping uh, improve uh, safety, but sometimes uh, that can involve a lot of dollars. And so what is New Haven doing to do it uh, uh, on the cheap, so to speak, uh, but also making improvements that you're seeing results? Well, we've been able to use some lighter and quicker tactical urbanist uh, methodology, for instance, with respect to testing whether or not concrete construction would work. We've been able to place traffic cones in the right-of-way, put up temporary signs and temporary tape, and then measure the impact from, the, from respect to the traffic counts as well as our neighborhood benefit. Um, you know, we've been learning a lot from watching folks like Street Plans out of New York, leading the way in tactical urbanism and, and trying to do things uh, in a shorter term uh, so that residents who are complaining can, can work with us to iterate, iterate, iterate. It's a very uncomfortable place for a lot of folks to be in, frankly, because we'd rather have a full project and spend the, 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 the real dollars on concrete. But in the interim, while folks are waiting and, and our job is to mitigate risk, we have to be trying more and doing more. So tactical urbanism, so it's like a, a trial and error approach to urban planning? In a way, and, and really, there's a lot of concepts out there to, uh, to use. There's, a tool, there's really a tool belt of traffic calming methods. And to figure out which is the best for the situation, sometimes you do want to have a little bit of trial. What, one thing we've really worked with our community on, the New Haven Bike Month group has been using our uh, stencils. We bought stencils for, for bike lane stencils, and we lend them out to the community. So they use duct tape, uh, cornstarch, water, and food coloring and make um, temporary pop-up bike lanes when they have road closure festivals. And it's a great way to just to get out there and, and get the community more comfortable. To the, to the caller's point, you know, a lot of our communities are seeing a lot of fast traffic. And so just getting them used to, you know, having other users in the roadway is really important. Uh, Norman Garrick's with us. What's your take on Complete Streets 2.0, Norman? I think the idea of tactical urbanism has been a really powerful one, um, partly out of the Congress for the New Urbanism. Um, what it does is that we, um, in the past, we, we would plan a lot of what gets done on the streets based on engineering models or ed- engineering ideo- ideology. And what tactical urbanism does is gets you to try different things. So um, is it actually going to slow down the traffic? Is it actually going to cause traffic congestion? Is it actually going to slow down the traffic? So you get to try things in a cheaper way or a quicker way, and then you can demonstrate that some of these ideas actually work. And in fact, if we look at what was done in New York City, it was really a grand use of tactical urbanism on um, Broadway. The Broadway closing was really using very cheap and very temporary type of solutions. And then over time, they made it more permanent as they saw how well it worked. Uh, New York, when they've had some of those approaches in, in New York City, Norman, uh, there was some uh, backlash, especially when uh, certain uh, parking spaces were eliminated. Yes, and this is what exactly what um, tactical urbanism does. It um, it addresses um, the potential for these um, criticism because then it it shows the the reality rather than the fear. 
Um, so even though Woody Allen is against backlands in Manhattan, you can use tactical urbanism solutions to actually test the fear and also to test the hope of the people on the other side. And so things like the bike lane in um, Prospect Park was very, very, very unpopular. And now that it's been implemented. So as you implement things, you can see the reality and you can also test um, whether or not it needs to be tweaked and made better. So what is working, what is not working. Speaking of bike lanes, just to get a little more of a, an idea of, of what other changes have happened in the city of New Haven, uh, Doug House-Laden, I understand there's also wrong direction bike lanes. Yes, we've been able to find space in the right-of-way for cyclists. Uh, so in High Street in downtown New Haven, we've been able to install a contraflow bike lane to allow folks in our one-way grid to sort of cut four blocks out of their commute to get from A to B. And so uh, infrastructure is incredibly important, but if it doesn't get you the entire way, if there's gaps in your infrastructure or if it makes it too hard, you're not going to see the behavior change. And we've been really proud of, of how folks have been opting out of the car in New Haven, and I'm really excited about the new census to see our numbers. Um, in, in addition to ContraFlow, we've been able to install, thanks to the 2015 bike bill, uh, we've been able to install two-way cycle tracks. Uh, our, our, our favorite design is on Long Wharf Drive, and that was really a partnership with the, the state DOT and how we wanted our local roadway restored after they left from the Q Bridge project. So it was an opportunity to sneak some alternative transportation infrastructure in on a maintenance budget when something was already committed with federal funds. And so it's been a very successful project, just again, reordering the right of way and making sure folks know that there is a place for them if they're on two wheels or on, on foot. Doug Houseladen again, is Director of Transportation, Traffic, and Parking for the City of New Haven. Doug, thank you so much for coming on to talk about Complete Streets 2.0. Thanks, Thanks so much, and happy Memorial Day, everybody. <laughs> Also, uh, Norman Garrick, Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at UConn, who is currently serving as Visiting Professor at the Institute for Transportation Planning Systems at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich, joining us uh, from Zurich today. Thank you so much, Norman. We appreciated your perspective. It was a great pleasure being home for a bit. Thank you so much. <laughs> Take care. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to Kion Wolf and Lydia Brown. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have a great weekend. <laughs>